Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A Hamilton murder trial is nearing its conclusion. We've learned the mortgage stress test is staying put. Big news for the Paris to Ancaster bike race. Trudeau versus Poliev is heating up. France versus Argentina. Who has the edge? And the Great Eights reaches a magical milestone. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Jury deliberations are underway in the trial of a Binbrook man who's charged with the murder of a Six Nations man. Peter Cahill has pleaded not guilty, claiming that he fatally shot Jonathan Styers twice with a shotgun in self-defense in his driveway back in 2016. Lisa Pulesky is a reporter with 900 CHML and has been covering this trial from the start. Lisa, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Rick. Thanks for having me. What have we learned at this trial when the jurors were learning details of what happens now six years ago? So we've learned basically that, you know, I, I, a lot of this was probably a repeat of the first trial because we know this wasn't uh, the first trial for Peter Cahill. This is actually technically the third. The second ended in a mistrial. Um, but we've basically learned that, you know, at 3 a.m. on February 4th, 2016, uh, Peter and his then girlfriend, now wife, Melinda, were awoken by the sound of someone outside in the pickup truck. Um, so Peter ended up uh, getting his shotgun, loading it, and going out to confront the person in the, the pickup truck. Um, that was Jonathan Styers. And he ended up shooting him twice with the shotgun, and Styers ultimately died as a result of those injuries. Those are all agreed uh, statements of facts from the court. So now it's basically up to the jury, who is uh, sequestered, and they are going to decide whether they have three options for a verdict, basically. They can decide whether Cahill is guilty of second-degree murder, um, not guilty of second-degree murder, but guilty of manslaughter, or not guilty of either charge. So that's basically what uh, is happening right now in the trial. And the big wedge in this, or the big differing of opinion is, the defense claims that it was self-defense. The prosecution is saying there was some intent here. How has that played out in the courtroom? Yeah, so basically talking about, uh, you know, what constitutes self-defense, did they, did Peter Cahill genuinely think that Jonathan Styers was armed with a gun. Um, he talked about seeing Styers raise his hands to sort of gun level height. Um, and and that maybe is what led him to think that Styers had a gun. Uh, it, it, it basically the argument here is whether or not he had the intent to kill him. Um, and went out there with the intent to kill, uh, that would basically find him guilty of second-degree murder if the jury thinks that that is indeed the case. So it, it's it's kind of a, it's, it's really, I don't envy these jurors being in this position. There's a lot to look at and a lot of evidence to go through. Uh, but basically, yeah, that's, that's where we're at right now. Those jury deliberations continuing today, again in the trial of a Bimbrook man, Peter Cahill, who's charged with the murder of uh, Jonathan Styers, a Six Nations man. We're in discussion with Lisa Pileski, reporter here on 900 CHML. Uh, Cahill's experience as a former military reservist was also brought up during this testimony. What did we hear? 
Yeah, so he was a he was a military reservist, and you know he had the training of a soldier. Is what he argued, uh, or what he told police when he was being arrested. He's saying, you know, I reacted as a soldier. That that was it was just my training. So the, the that is kind of come into play, looking at the mentality of what a soldier might how a soldier might react in the time. Um, but the crown is arguing, well, you know, you should also have the state of mind to to not react in those situations just because you have that training doesn't justify killing someone in this sort of situation. So, so that has definitely come up, but it's not, you know, it, it, again, once again, the jury has to look at that evidence and say, well, well, does that justify firing in self-defense or, or is that just a factor in his life that doesn't necessarily, you know, justify Styers being shot at that time. So it's it's it is definitely a factor, but it it's it's remains to be seen whether or not it's going to actually play a role in the uh, in the verdict ultimately. I know you don't have a uh, an answer to this, but I'm going to ask you for a gut feeling, are we expecting a verdict today? I don't know. I feel like um I feel like it may take them a few days cuz there's really a lot to go through and the fact that they do have three possible verdicts, not just two guilty or not guilty. They can they can go for manslaughter as well and manslaughter essentially finds that the jury doesn't believe he had the intent to kill Stars when he shot him and also didn't have the state of mind to commit murder. So that is an option too. Um, if I were part of this jury, again, just speculation, I feel like there would be, I would really have a lot of thinking and discussing to do. So I feel like it's going to take a few days, but, you know, I, I might be surprised. I might be going on the newscast later today They <laughs> oh, we have a verdict. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. We shall see. Lisa Pileski will be breaking that news when it does come down. Lisa, appreciate your time. Thanks for covering this trial as well. Thanks very much. That is 900 CHML reporter Lisa Pileski. Again, the jury has uh, three options, either not guilty, not guilty of second-degree murder, but guilty of manslaughter, or guilty of second-degree murder. When the jury is back and uh, ready to deliver its verdict, we will be bringing that news to you here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I wish I could turn back time and lock in like a 40-year mortgage uh, at the, what, 0.25 percentage points? <sighs> Not so much. Despite our current housing crisis and the uh, lack of affordable housing out there, Canada's mortgage stress test is not going away. Brian Hogman is a broker for Mission 35 Mortgages and also the author of How to Get Mortgage-Free Really Bleeping Fast, the book on how to pay off your mortgage in Canada with 10 simple steps. Brian, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I am doing great. How about yourself? I'm okay. I hope you don't mind me altering the wording on your book title there. but I don't mind at all. Based on uh, current economic <laughs> events, I think I need to add an additional chapter or two to that book. I would so. imagine so. Let's start yeah. by having you explain the mortgage stress test. How does it work? Yeah, the stress test was designed and came out uh, for Canadians getting a mortgage in 2016. And the idea is that you had to qualify at an interest rate higher than what you would actually be paying. So, you know, in today's market right now, if you're getting an interest rate for, say, 5%, the stress test says you have to qualify at 7 And the theory behind it was to protect from rising interest rates. And in addition to that, protect from, let's say, a loss of income or uh, some sort of shock to the household. So basically saying if uh, if a tragic or some sort of event, financial event happens, you'll still be able to pay your mortgage. 
Um, so that's that's where the uh, thought and process came from for the stress test, which leads us to today. I think at the time, too, if my memory serves me, it was also brought in to kind of uh, keep a lid on rising house prices at the time, which I guess the, in, in that regard, it hasn't really been an effective tool. <laughs> that's correct, actually. It, it was. And I remember mortgage brokers like myself five years ago were moaning and groaning about this because it did make it harder for Canadians to qualify for mortgages. And as we all know, over the past five years, we've seen just tremendous growth in the housing market. So I don't think that intention uh, was successful. However, I do think, you know, looking at it now, people who did qualify under that stress test, you know what, we're not seeing as many defaults on mortgages right now because of that stress test. So what does this decision, what impact does it have on people who are either refinancing or they're trying to get into the housing market? Uh, That's a great question, Rick. And I think this is one thing that I wish they made an amendment to it instead of changing the rate because uh, you nailed it on the head there. It affects first-time homebuyers or homebuyers because it makes it harder to qualify for a mortgage, right? If you're getting, because interest rates are higher than they have been in a long time, now it is much more difficult to qualify. Um, now that I understand and agree with uh, as, as uh, when it comes down to the Bank of Canada making that, when it comes down to the renewals and refinances that you end up mentioning there, that is the tough part because there's a lot of Canadians right now who may be renewing their mortgage but now they'll be handcuffed to their bank because they won't be able to qualify to say, go rate shopping or look for a better alternative because they may not qualify now because the rates have have gone up so much. So it really handcuffs them to their lender right now in some cases. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Brian Hogman, broker for Mission 35 Mortgages and author of How to Get Mortgage Free Really Bleeping Fast, the book on how to pay off your mortgage in Canada with 10 simple steps. The uh, regulator that oversees the mortgage stress test uh, says it's going to launch a review next month. Um, What do you expect to come of that? Uh, I don't expect much to come of uh, the stress test. Uh, I hope they come up with an amendment, like I say, where they'll treat buyers differently from, say, people that are refinancing or renewal. But a lot of it will come down to inflation, right? I'm not surprised they didn't change it because in a market where they're raising interest rates astronomically over the past, you know, nine, 10 months to curb inflation, if they reduce the stress test, uh, ergo making it easier for Canadians to qualify for mortgages, that could spur more purchasing. So for them to change it right now, I'm not surprised that they're not. However, if inflation does cool when numbers come out again in January and if rates start to stabilize, I think it, you know there might be some possibility for them to use this as a tool to spur the housing market again. We have one minute to go. We've had seven rate increases by the Bank of Canada this year. Look into that. Uh, whether it's a crystal clear crystal ball or a, or a, a really cloudy crystal ball, what do you see in 2023 in terms of interest rates? Well, I appreciate you prefacing that, that it is a little cloudy, Rick. So, but what I would say is the Bank of Canada changed their narrative at their last press release. Uh, when they increased the rate last time, uh, just a week or two ago, they ended up saying at their next meeting, January 25th, they're going to consider whether or not they should be raising interest rates instead of how much they're going to raise interest rates. So I'm optimistic that that's a sign that they're saying, hey, we may be at the top right now. We understand that there's a lagging effect of rising interest rates on people's credit situations. So my foggy gray crystal ball says uh, Bank of Canada holds steady. uh, And that's also dependent upon if we if we see a massive inflationary number in January, 
that'll probably change. But I think we are at the peak. I'm hopeful we're at the peak. And I think the Bank of Canada is feeling that way as well, too. So I don't think rates will be coming down in the first, second, third quarter. But to see them hold steady would be a would be a nice sign of, of optimism coming this year. We should light some fireworks to celebrate that. Brian, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us and uh, have a great weekend. Thanks, Rick. You too. That's Brian Hogman. He's a broker for Mission 35 Mortgages. Check them out online, mission35mortgages.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, exciting news regarding the 29th annual Paris to Ancaster bike race. And I won't spoil the party or let our next guests describe what is going on. John Thorpe is the founder and Tim Farrar is the co-race director of the Paris to Ancaster bike race. And they both join me now on Good Morning Hamilton. John, Tim, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. John, we'll start with you uh, as the founder of this uh, iconic event. What is the big news? Well, I got to start off by saying Tim is actually the founder. I'm sort of a co-founder. <laughs> okay, but, uh, okay. But close enough. Uh, give credit where credit's due. Um, the big news is that this year, for the first time ever, we're running a Canadian championships, Canadian gravel championships. Um, and Tim can probably give you a better idea what gravel racing is about. Yeah, Tim, go ahead. What does this mean for the Paris Ancaster bike race? Well, it means different things to different people, but if you're one of the uh, stronger riders in the country um, or in your neighborhood, you might want to consider entering our national championship distance. It's the, uh, it's the first time Cycling Canada has recognized this uh, uh, discipline. Um, you know, like we have road racing and track racing and BMX racing, and uh, gravel racing is something that's relatively new. Um, took off in the States about uh, 10, 15 years ago, um, and then suddenly they caught up to us at Paris Ancaster, and uh, it's being recognized now internationally as a separate discipline, and uh, now in Canada as its first uh, national gravel championship. So, Tim, I know that the Paris to Ancaster bike race, there are different um, surfaces in which bikes travel on. Is, is the gravel championship just solely gravel, then? No, it isn't. It's uh, that's not practical, really, in any any part of the world. Okay. Almost, um, it's a mix of uh, gravel roads, uh, gravel rail trails, uh, paved trails, some paved roads. But the thing that makes Paris Ancaster unique is that we've got just a, a load Mud. of private property sections <laughs> that uh, individual farmers allow us to race across once a year. So that's what uh, you know. Where the uh, extra extra challenge and extra interest and change of uh, change of race surfaces comes in. John, does this also mean that you're going to see more registrants in next year's race? We're expecting we will, and we're also expecting there'll be a, a broader range of people from across the country. So we've always got people from various points in the country who come in to do the event, but uh, with the national championships, we expect there'll be um, all different ages. It's, uh, there's different categories from the elites to the masters, men and women, uh, so we expect there'll be people from across the country who come to uh, to challenge the uh, and compete for the first ever Canadian Gravel Championship. Our guests on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, John Thorpe and Tim Farrar from Paris to Ancaster Bike Race. You can check out all the details online, parisToAncaster.com. The big event goes April 30th, 2023. John, are there course changes or are we sticking with what has worked? 
Well, we did a big change last year, uh, and we added an event, and the event we added was the 100-kilometer one. Previously, our longest had been about 70 kilometers. So it's the 100-kilometer course that we're using for the Canadian Championships because that sort of is a – there's no official length, but that's more of a standard that you have a bit longer course. So we're going with very much the same course as last year. And, Tim, how was the 100K accepted last year? Are a lot of people excited to take part and give you great feedback? We did get a lot of feedback on the course, and it was uh, generally positive. But the one thing I would like to uh, reiterate is that we still have our original course distances. Um, there's still a 70-kilometer a event that people are, are used to, um, and there's still the 45-kilometer um, event starting in St. George. And we've still got our family um, event starting in, uh, in Hamilton. So uh, while the national championship is the big news, the... Uh, the return of all the other popular distances is, uh, you know, it's still integral, and that's, you know, that's the, the race that people have come to love. So. Tim, what's and your... They're, they're f- Go ahead, John. Sorry, I was going to say they'll all be finishing in the same spot, so the national champions will be finishing, everybody will be finishing at Ancaster. That is pretty cool. I'm going to ask both you guys yeah. about your favorite part of the race course. John, we'll start with you. Well, I guess the most iconic part is the Powerline Road mudslide, or... So it's called and it's the end of Paraline Road, where they uh, there's a pretty pretty good pitch, and um, it's uh, basically a hydro cut, and has uh, developed into quite the feature of the event. It's usually wet, uh, so th- th- there's some rumors that Tim hoses it down before the race. But <laughs> Tim, is that no true? Comment on that. I, I will neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Tim, is that the highlight of the course for you as well? Well, since John's picked it, I'd have to go a kilometer or two later in the race course and uh, go with the final climb uh, up Martin's Road. That's uh, that's pretty iconic, and everybody uh, everybody struggles on that. Um, but that's how you know you're near the finish. I can imagine John Thorpe and Tim Farrar, our guests. They're from Paris to Ancaster Bike Race, and the big event goes April 30th of next year. Registrations opened this past Tuesday. And, John, this is an iconic event for a number of reasons. One, you know, the race itself, adding the 2023 Canadian Gravel Championship to the mix is another feather in your cap. But this event also supports the St. Joe's Healthcare Foundation. Talk about that partnership as well. That's right, Rick, and they've been our, our charity partner for quite some time now. It's been great to work with them. Um, Sarah and Mark and their team do a, do a lot of work, and they're uh, raising money for research. It's called the Ride for Research. Uh, they've got some teams from the various research departments of the hospital who will be riding and uh, uh, raising funds that, that all go towards the hospital. And more information about that at stjoesfoundation.ca forward slash P, the number two, Hey, John, Tim, uh, thanks for joining us today. Congratulations on the big news as well. And uh, we'll be in touch closer to the April 30th events. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Rick. That is John Thorpe and Tim Farrar from the Paris to Ancaster bike race. More details online, Paris to Ancaster.com. And the big day is April the 30th. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Mr. Polyev might choose to undermine our democracy by amplifying conspiracy theories. He might decide to run away from journalists when they ask him tough questions. But when he says that Canada is broken, that's where we draw the line. The political rhetoric is heating up between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. That was a clip from Wednesday in which the Prime Minister was speaking to Liberal supporters and says that Canada is not broken. But is it? 
Jean-Vive Tellier is a professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Professor Tellier, good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Good morning, Rick. Back in November, Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre told reporters that, quote, it feels like everything is broken in this country right now. In Wednesday's speech that Trudeau gave to his supporters, he pledged that Canada, and we heard in the clip, Canada is not broken. Considering that we're in a health care and a housing crisis, inflation is sky high, food prices are way up, does Trudeau really want to stick with that messaging? Um, uh, yes, probably, but uh, perhaps for another reason, in the sense that, yes, there are many issues facing the country currently, especially from the health and the economy, as you mentioned. But going as far as saying that the country is bo- broken in a, si- in a sense of it is strongly polarized, uh, people don't gather together, uh, there are divisions between all the area uh, provinces in the country. Uh, I think that's the messaging that Trudeau wants to say that this is not the case. And so Poiliev will probably uh, say the contrary and say, no, we don't listen to Alberta, for instance, or for or to Quebec. And Trudeau will present the uh, opposite argument uh, saying, no, on the contrary, we have a great country. It is united uh, behind some major uh, objective and and and, the, the, and he, he is there f- to support that. And so that will be, I think, the kind of debate that uh, Trudeau wants to bring. But Poiliev, of course, will try to focus more on the current issue that are problematic, of course, healthcare, uh, inflation. But saying as far as the country is broken, that's this kind of a very strong assessment. And I'm not sure that everybody would 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 agree with that. And so that's what Trudeau is trying to do to to change a narrative uh, on that issue. Another interesting comment that uh, Mr. Trudeau made on Wednesday is that he told supporters that conservatives are not our enemies and we all have to work together no matter who you voted for. Your thoughts on Trudeau's tactic here? We're coming back to uh, 2015. I mean, the first election of Justin Trudeau, he presented himself as being this guy uh, trying to be non-divisive, uh, to change the tone of, um, of, of on the political scene. And I think that he have perhaps learned some lesson from the recent election in Quebec, where many leaders also had that message and say, well, we want to show a positive um, aspect of politics. And that that was that was uh, rewarding for the, con- the for the parties that have used that strategy. I'm thinking about uh, the Parti Québécois and, and and also François Legault, the current premier. And so changing that negativity, uh, with which I think many Canadians are kind of tired and a bit fed up. And that that I think is the image that Trudeau wants to show. And it's an image that. Poiliev will have a difficulty to to present because we know him well. You know, sometimes we call him a pit bull. You know, just to say how he is um, not aggressive, but he's fighting. Um, and so I want. I think that Trudeau wants to contrast his own personality um, with that of Pierre Poiliev. And so we may see the the, the former Trudeau, the, the Trudeau that we have seen many years ago at the first election, and not so much the more recent Trudeau. We have a couple more minutes with Jean-Vive Tellier, professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about the uh, war of words that is uh, beginning to heat up even more so between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev. Uh, Earlier this week, we saw Ontario, former Ontario Finance Minister Charles Sousa win the federal by-election in Mississauga Lakeshore, one of those GTA 905 ridings that the Liberals always seem to win. 
Pierre Poliev did not show up during that by-election race, and Mr. Trudeau pointed that out, saying that Poliev did not want to wear that loss if, in fact, Sousa ended up winning, in which he did. And Trudeau said, trust me, as a leader, you wear everything, win or lose. Your mm-hmm. thought on that little needle from the prime minister? Yes, I think, uh, well, that's good politics in the sense that, uh, yes, it's an argument that could be made. Uh, it is, yes, surprising that Poiliev was not there. But at the same time, uh, he was traveling all across the country. And I think what he's doing now, it's what the leader of the Conservative, Conservative Party should do. It's to listen to Canadians and come up eventually with a platform uh, that would appeal to a majority or a good number of Canadians. And uh, frankly, during that by-election, uh, there were no there is no platform from the conservative and there is nothing to offer that is new um, and Poiliev has to be careful not to bring criticism. Uh, you recall his comment about the governor of the Bank of Canada or cryptocurrencies and so uh, I think that will haunt him for many months or years and so he it was more important in my view to avoid uh, making some mistakes than uh, not showing up uh, during that by-election where frankly his candidate was not up to par with uh, Charles Souza's uh, candidacy. And so it was, I think, a done deal at the beginning in the sense that you have a very strong candidate and, and the conservative, I think, did not put the effort to present one serious adversary um, to the liberal uh, candidate. So once it was um, clear I, for me, at least, clear the outcome at the beginning of the by-election campaign. Um, what's the point of going there? So, yes, I can understand the, the strategy of Poiliev, but at the same time, I do also understand that Trudeau won't miss an opportunity to to blame him or to criticize him. Yeah, you have to uh, strike while the iron is hot all the time in politics. Yes, Professor sure. Tellier, thank you for joining us today and enjoy your day and your weekend. Thank you very much. Jean-Vierre Tellier is a professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Sunday is the day and it is a titanic matchup between defending champion France and Argentina in the World Cup final. France trying to become the first country in 60 years to win back-to-back World Cup championships. Argentina led by Leo Messi trying to win their first one, well, in a long, long time. Uh, Adam Zdroik is a soccer editor with Roto-Wire and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Adam, how are you? Hey, Rick, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. I have to imagine that France, given their talent, their their depth, their near-perfect play in this year's tournament in Qatar, and being the defending champion, that, that France has to be the betting favorite on Sunday. What are you guys seeing? I think it's pretty close. I think they're they're pretty even. I mean, if you're looking at the odds as as we talk right now, they are actually even. France, maybe the you know the European team taking on the South American team. So you you have that, and and people are looking at Mbappe against Messi. Very even though there will be people betting on Messi, there will be people betting on Mbappe. It's it's going to be a fun game. It should be a fun game because you have superstars on both sides, and those two guys, uh, among others, are in the race for the Golden Boot. The Golden Boot, each and every time at the World Cup, is awarded to the top scorer in the tournament. It's still very much up for grabs. You have Mbappe and Messi, both with five goals. Right behind them with four tallies is France's Olivier Giroud and Argentina's Julian Alvarez. Do we have a favorite to win here? I'd say I'd go with 
messy. I'm just leaning towards when Argentina score, it usually involves Messi doing something on the ball. He's either scoring or assisting. I know Alvarez is there. But with France, as we saw the last two games for France, Mbappe, he's kind of getting defended really well. The other teams are putting almost two guys on him whenever he gets the ball. So he hasn't really shown up with the goals in the last couple matches. And that's kind of why I'm leaning towards Messi. If you want to, if you want to look at either of these, either of those guys there. Yes, we could say there's pretty, there's not a wrong answer in this. That is for sure. Because no. both guys are super talented. Adam Zadroik is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Adam is a soccer editor at Rotowire. How much money did Morocco deliver to betters or cost betters? <laughs> that is a good question. That a lot, a I guess, question. is the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could look at it both ways, but I'm not sure how many people actually took Morocco to make the semifinals. So I guess you kind of look at it from that perspective where, you know, they took down Spain, they took down Portugal, both those matchups, even though maybe there's, you know, some people, a certain percentage, probably wasn't a high percentage that bet on Morocco to advance there. It probably wasn't that high. No one was thinking they get past Spain because they weren't going to possess the ball. No one were thinking they're going to get past Portugal because Portugal just put six goals in their prior game. Yeah, they made it. And while they lost to France, uh, they put up a pretty respectable fight in that game as well. So. This would be very similar to, you know, a a lesser team, quote unquote, in the NCAA Final Four, where a team makes a run to, I don't know, the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight, and you don't really see this team coming. It's honestly very much like uh, we had St. Peter's do it this past year, I guess 2022 still, uh, this past tournament where they made it, uh, I think it was the Final Four, or I guess maybe Elite Eight. They lost to North Carolina, I want to say. In the same kind of situation. I mean, they put up a fight. They got to they got to where no one else thought they could go, and they put in an exciting game instead of being you know completely blown out on the biggest stage possible. Uh, Morocco was certainly a pleasant surprise in terms of how far they went. I guess maybe perhaps one of the biggest disappointments with apologies to those who cheer for Germany because they didn't even get it out of the group. But uh, Brazil losing in the quarters to Croatia, that must have stung because Brazil was the betting favorites going in. Mm -hmm. The game was tough in general. Not only did they lose on PKs, but they... they controlled that match. They dominated that match. And Croatia's only shot on goal was their goal that they scored in, I think it was the 117th minute there of extra time. So very tough for Brazil. They were up, they were up a goal. And instead of, you know, maybe sitting back a little more, they kind of let themselves open to a goal. That one, I mean, it it still has to sting for them because the rival Argentina are playing in the final. So that's, it's very difficult for them. With the World Cup coming back to North America in four years, it was in the U.S. in 94, and now in 2026, it'll be co-hosted by the States, Canada, and Mexico. There's going to be 48 teams instead of 32. We could easily say that this tournament is going to be bigger and and maybe even better than ever before. I think it's going to be crazy in in 2026. the, The thing that people are looking at is, well, there's more teams, but that means maybe more, you know, kind of blowout kind of games. But I mean, we saw this year where teams that weren't projected be good. I mean, a team like Morocco weren't weren't projected to advance or, or in Australia weren't projected to advance. They still made it out to knockout. So 
Uh, it'll be interesting. It'll be, I mean, it's hard to say right now four years uh, before it happens, but the extra 16 teams will make it crazy. But, you know, games in Toronto, it's it's going to be fun and and across North America. So Argentina trying to win their first World Cup since 1986 and their second overall, or pardon me, their third overall. Uh, France trying to become just the third country to go back to back. Brazil did it in 58 and 62, and Italy was the first to do it in 34-38. Who are you picking? Who wins this game? I think France probably have the better overall team from a player-to-player perspective, but it almost seems like it's Messi's time. That That's kind of what it comes down to. Messi, everyone knows he's never won a World Cup, and that's what the, his his main title that he's missing. Uh, and even if I think France maybe have the better overall team, I'm just siding with Messi. It just seems like he's going to create some magic and just do enough to get Argentina to advance, whether that's regular time, extra time, penalties. I think Messi is, is just going to do it for Argentina. I have the same feeling, and I think that most people want to see this chapter come to an end the way that uh, you know many others have in the past with a superstar player winning a championship, and Leo Messi has been all-world his entire career, and what a way to go out um, at 35 in his last World Cup to win it. Should be a fun game either way, I'm sure. Adam, really appreciate your time, and enjoy the game on Sunday. Hey, thanks a lot. You as well. Adam Zadroik, soccer editor with Rotowire. 10 a.m. Eastern Time is kickoff Argentina and France. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Now the turnover in front and Mantha feeding it to Kuznetsov and Morazic diving. A shot! They score! And it's Alex Ovechkin! And it's 800 goals in the National Hockey League! Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Yes, Washington Capitals captain Alex Ovechkin becoming just the third player in NHL history, remarkably, to hit that 800-goal club. Is he well on his way to breaking Wayne Gretzky's all-time mark of 894? He's one goal behind the great Gordie Howe. How much higher can he rise? Brian Murphy is an NHL content producer with the Sporting News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Brian, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, 500 goals is an automatic ticket to the Hall of Fame. Only 20 NHLers have hit 600. Eight are in the 700 club. And the sky-high 800 level now has three occupants. Ovi's rise up the goal-scoring chart has been amazing to watch, hasn't it? It absolutely has, and it's the fact that it's just been so consistent year after year. I mean, this is a guy that I think a lot of people are talking about. Does he still have it? And he's continued to prove them wrong year after year. He's on another pace for another 50-goal season this year. He's absolutely unstoppable. And he's 37. Exactly, yeah. He's still got years ahead of him. That's the thing. And that and it would be concerning if he was slowing down, but his pace is not. Like I said, he's still producing like he has been throughout the entirety of his career. It's been absolutely amazing to watch. So Vetchkin hit 800 in 1,306 games, 461 fewer than Gordie Howe, who sits at 801. He's 94 goals behind the great one, Wayne Gretzky. Mm-hmm. We can say really that the race is on because Ovechkin, as you mentioned, has not slowed down. No, not at all. And I know this was this was a conversation that was a couple of years ago. People were really asking, "Is it realistic?" And I and 
we are seeing now that those people that believed in him are absolutely right. As you said, he's about 90 away at the rate that he scores. He scores about 0.6 goals per game. So he's going to need to play in about 150 more regular season games, which is very doable. That's at least two more years in the National Hockey League. And like I said, barring a significant injury or a major drop off in production, he's going to hit it. It's just a matter of when. There's no question that, you know, he if he doesn't get over it, he's going to get very close. And, you know, my gut tells me he's going to continue to play until he reaches and surpasses Gretzky. And I'm not sure what the final number looks like. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, whether the team is playing well or not, he's still scoring goals. When it's all said and done, he's undoubtedly going to be among the greatest goal scorers in NHL history. Where does this put Ovi amongst the greatest players in NHL history? Yeah, it's it's going to be a tough argument. Obviously, he's had the success individually. He's got, obviously, multiple Rocket Richard trophies. Uh, he's got the Stanley Cup, which is huge, because that's obviously a, huge, a big argument when you're talking about the greatest players in this game. He's a guy that broke Gretzky's record, and for the longest time we were talking about how these Gretzky records were unbreakable, unthinkable for people to pass them. You now have got to consider him. I, I would put him probably, you're not talking about a top 10 player, I don't think of all time, but you could see an argument for top 15, I would say, uh, maybe top 20, because like you said, it, just the goal scoring is, is absolutely incredible. He's got the hardware to back it up. We're looking at one of the greatest goal scorers of all time, and obviously if he passes Gretzky, it's going to be hard to knock him as not the greatest goal scorer to ever play in the National Hockey League. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Brian Murphy, NHL content producer with the Sporting News. Uh, Connor McDavid leads the goal scoring race with 27. Alex Ovechkin is, you know, climbing up the chart. He's, he's got a ways to go to catch uh, the new number one player in the National Hockey League. Could could Ovechkin potentially challenge McDavid for that rocket Richard? I, this the way that things are going this season, and McDavid is just continuing to produce video game numbers in the National Hockey League. I think it's going to take a lot. We're going to need to see Ovechkin get hot. And obviously, when you've got the stretch that he has right now, he had three goals the other night. Um, I, I think it's possible. He is going to have quite a bit of catching up to do, and you're going to need McDavid to drop off a little bit in production. But it's not possible, as we've seen Ovechkin score at a rapid rate before. He could very easily do that again and surpass McDavid. But right now, I think the, the Rock of Richard is going to be McDavid's to lose. Yeah, I think you're right. McDavid with 27, Ovechkin with 20, so he's got some work to do. But uh, we shouldn't put past the great eight, that is for sure. Brian, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy your weekend. Thank you, Rick. Enjoy the holiday season. You too. That is Brian Murphy. He's an NHL content producer with The Sporting News. Check him out online at thesportingnews.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.